The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning. Good morning. The, uh, yes, we are now on the third team. You had Brad as second team last week, and I'm third team, but we have a new hate, so that's kind of fun, and uh, I'm really glad to be able to be here this morning. Uh, I had a couple of the young young folks come up and they were laughing because they looked at the title of the message and I finally stumped them. They had not ever heard of this particular place and Brad and I don't even pronounce it the same. So we were laughing because we turn on our apps and listen to how the Bible reader says it to try to figure out how to name these names. But uh, it's Pi-Hi-Harath is the way Brad said. I, I've lived over pi hi Anyway, I guess he's got me convinced. Uh, and if I were to have asked you before, where is that? I would dare say that the vast majority of you would say, I have no idea. Well, after today, I think you're going to have an idea. But the geography of it is not as important as the meaning of it. So let's ask God to really open our hearts and minds to the word. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for the chance that we have to open your word and learn of you. Thank you for this incredible story and all that is, goes underneath it and all of the meaning from it. Thank you for making yourself known to the world and even more importantly, to us, your children. This morning, Lord, way we hear your voice, um, learn from your word, and that my prayer, Lord, is that we would go away encouraged and strengthened because we were here today under your teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you will turn to Exodus chapter 14, it is a very familiar passage for many of you, uh, but I would dare say uh, that if I were to ask, probably more of you have seen the Ten Commandment movie and remember that scene, then we kind of think of Exodus 14. Now, I know there's a broad range of ages and stages. How many of you have seen the old Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie? Will you raise your hand if, if you have? Oh, man, those of you that haven't, you have missed one of the great scenes of cinematography because it ties into the scriptures. Uh, now, not that all of it was exactly accurate scripturally, but the scene of Exodus 14 was pretty close, and it was pretty exciting. See, in that kind of a situation, what happened was the, you see the walls of the sea lined up this way. And the Israelites, and if there were 600,000 men, that means there's close to 2 million of them, walking through on dry land. And then when you get to the other side, Moses raises his hand again, and what happens? Man, those waves come crashing down on all those nasty Egyptians. You feel sorry for the horses, but not for the Egyptians, okay? That's just where I was coming from at that time. It's an amazing, amazing picture. And sometimes when we read this, our mind stays on that picture more than it does on the meaning behind the event. 
So this morning, we're going to be looking at that more than just the picture of what happened as to why it happened. Um, <clears throat> I think most of you may be fairly like me in some ways. When I'm in a problematic situation, I'm in a situation where things do not look good. There's no real quick answer. There's nothing that I can really do, and I'm in a mess. If you got yourself in that mess, how do you feel about it? That's not rhetorical. Go ahead. How do you feel? If you got yourself into it, what do you feel? Embarrassed? Embarrassed? <laughs> yeah, you feel like saying a lot of bad words. Starting with, how could I have been so, uh, I'm not allowed to use the word stupid, uh, foolish, to get to myself. How could I make that bad a choice to end up in that situation? Now, that's bad enough, and I'm in, I find myself in that situation plenty of times. But that's not nearly as frustrating to me as when I have listened to the Lord accurately this time, been obedient to him, followed through with what he told me, and I am in a terrible mess. I didn't cause it. It's not my fault. But it looks awful. That's a little tougher to take from God, isn't it? Because you begin to see your questions come out as, why? And the other statement is, this isn't fair. How often does that come out of us when it's not our fault we've been there? All right, this is what we're going to look at because the frustrating part of walking with God is that sometimes he leads us into situations that are awful, even when we're being obedient. Does that, I was going to say, does that make sense? Well, no, it doesn't really make sense, but do you understand what I'm saying on that? This is where we're looking at at Pahirath today. One of the questions we want to find out is start out with is that how in the world did they even get there? Now, many of you may know the story that there were the plagues and, and even deaths that had to happen in order for Pharaoh to allow the, the Israelites who had been in slavery for hundreds of years to allow them to leave Egypt. I mean, there was miracle on a miracle. Matter of fact, God had to do some miracles just to get Moses as the leader to accept God's words of what he's supposed to do with his people. So that the story starts back there. Then it comes to the people. And of course, Pharaoh would almost always say, sure, go ahead, and then boom, change his mind, and turn it around, and then the next plague would be worse. So they've been seeing this as they go along. But finally, they, after they took the first, well, God, the, the angel of death took the firstborn, he threw up his hands and released them. Now, can you imagine the joy? It says that they, they, they looted the Egyptians around them, but it was with their permission. The Egyptians were just giving them their jewelry and things for the trip because they had had favor with their neighbors. They're out, and the they, celebration and all that's going on, and they're out traveling to where they know is to be the promised land. So it's not only they're leaving slavery, but they're moving to this wonderful destination, and they're on the way. 
But then God does something. God says, uh, I know you're going in the right direction, but Moses, I want you to stop them. Take a detour. I want you to go, <laughs> literally, you're going to go into a cul-de-sac. Literally. You're going to a place where the sea is going to hem you in on one side, the wilderness will hem you in from the other sides, and then the Egyptians are going to come at you from the back. Of course, he didn't tell them the whole story, but he just said, take a, take a, take a trip and take a detour. All right, now, the interesting thing about how they got there is that it starts with the word of the Lord. When you get into this kind of a situation, it always begins with the word of the Lord, whether you're reading scripture, it's his still small voice, it could be a prophetic prayer, it could be a lot of different ways, but you feel confident that God is speaking to you to do something specific. It's really critical in that situation for a leader to hear that word. See, Moses heard it first. And then he told the people. The people really didn't, as far as we know, didn't really hear this word, but they were trusting Moses. Think of the kind of place that puts Moses in. Hey, guys, I want you to trust me. All two million of you, we're going to go ahead. I've heard what God said. Oh, whoops, time out. We're going to take a left turn into this cul-de-sac. And they're sitting there wondering what's going on. The second part of it is, is the hand of the Lord is at work. Because you saw coming out of uh, Egypt, his hand moving over and over and over. It wasn't like the, the word. Moses had all kinds of confidence. This is what God wants us to do. Now, specifically at this moment, I'm going to read uh, beginning at verse 1 into verse 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. That means kind of go backwards, you go into the, the cul-de-sac, the way that the Hebrew word means. And then camp in front of Pihirath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Savan, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Not a really wise campsite. But the interesting thing is that there's a few words at the end of that verse that says, and they did it. Somehow they trusted Moses that he'd earned that, that he was a spokesman, he and Aaron spokesman for God. They earned that. Now, how did the trouble get on them? Okay, they're there, they're at the campsite, everything's, I was going to say everything's kosher, but that's not, you know, everything is good. <laughs> All right? And so they're, they're camped. They're still trying to get used to this idea we're not slaves, but we have to provide for ourselves, we have to feed our families, we have to do all the normal things of life, and there's two million of us. I can't imagine. That's more people than live in all the Birmingham in the metro area. So we're, they're in the middle of all that, and here's the trouble that came. It begins in verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Basically, he's saying, Pharaoh's going to look at what you've done with his spies because he had spies watching him. And he's going to say, these poor dumb Israelites are lost. They have walked themselves into, I'm just calling it a cul-de-sac. And then here's what they say. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. Now skip down to verse, or look at verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, 
the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. I mean, that was a thing. Israel had all of these millions of people were servants and slaves. They were the backbone of Egyptian uh, economy, a mostly agricultural economy being supported by these slaves. All right, then it goes on and he says, the Egyptians pursued them. All of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, I'm verse 9, and he overtook them and camped by the sea, by Pihirath, in front of Baal-Zephon. Now, if you want to do any geographical study in scripture and everything and try to find out where they actually crossed the Red Sea or the Reed Sea or the Sea of Reeds or where Pihirath is, good luck. There's a lot of people a lot smarter than me that spent a lot of hours trying to figure this out, and it's not clear. They're pretty sure that it's connected to the Gulf, and it won't, but it's at the northern end, but there's, there's no way to know exactly where it was. But we do know that they were hemmed in by water, that, that sea, and they were hemmed in by wilderness, which was actually desert, and then the only place that was an opening where the way to go would be to go back out the way they came in, and that's when that's where the uh, the Israelites, or that's where the Egyptians came. Now, in this kind of a situation, if you're in Pihirath, God called you there, and all of a sudden the circumstances change. And what looked like a really good idea, what looked like God, well, I'm going to say this, it looked like God knew what He was doing, and now all of a sudden it doesn't look that way anymore. And you're in a total hopelessness. The reaction of the people, I think, would be is the same that I still have today when I'm in this kind of a situation. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. I'm in verse 10. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they what? They feared just a little bit. They feared greatly. Okay. We may not have an army of, of chariots behind us, but we find ourselves, and you may be there today in a circumstance where it looks totally hopeless. And our fears come out. Our fears of what the consequences might be, the fears of what may happen, our fear of, I don't have control of this. The fear of, that just, just comes over us. And that's what was happening for them. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's a good place to start. They said to Moses, though, and this is where it turned from crying out to the Lord and looking for his uh, release to complaining at, to the person that got you there. Because I think what we tend to do when we find ourselves in this kind of a hopeless situation, especially if it wasn't our fault, we want to find somebody to blame. And we know that we're not really supposed to blame God, so we got to find somebody else. And it just kind of happens. They blame Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? We already told you this. We told you, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Perfect example of when we're in a bad, awful, hopeless situation, we want to figure out how to fix it. 
They wanted to fix it. And their way of fixing it was, the way it was is better than this, so let's go back to that awful way it was. Now, that happens in a lot of situations. I was having prosecuted in an earlier life. I can't tell you those, especially women, that were in abusive situations. When we're trying to help them see that there is hope, don't go back to that. But the hopelessness that overwhelms them and the fear that I can't make it on my own that overwhelms them will cause many to choose the known pain versus the unknown realities. That's what they're doing. We'll fix it, God. You let us down, we're going to fix it, we'll go back to slavery. Now Moses had a neat response, and I find it interesting. Again, pretend you're Moses. You're the one that heard God's word. It's not just that you took yourself into this situation. You took your whole family into a situation. And the bottom fell out. And your family, maybe even your wife, is saying, what have you done? I told you this wasn't a good idea. And you're sitting there trying to understand how to deal with it. He said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be what? Silent. Quit complaining. Just stop. Be still and know that I am God. Boy, is that hard. I'll do almost anything except that. Well, what's interesting is that I automatically we think Moses, wow, he had that experience. He saw that, you know, he had the, the staff that turned into a snake, and he saw all these things happen. He had great faith in God. Well, before we give him too much credit, look at how he came to this kind of confidence. I mean, it seems easy, but, but look at verse 15. What did God say to Moses? What did he say? Why are you crying out to me? It's almost like he's saying, Haven't, do you remember everything that I've done? Do you remember the clarity with which my voice has spoken to you? Do you know how I got you here? Why are you crying to me? So apparently, Moses did have a time when he went crying to God. Now, God is really cool in this because he just says, tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. Okay, now put yourself in Moses. God just says this to you. Is this the answer you were thinking about? I mean, come on, put yourself there. And God says, lift up the thing, I'm going to dry up this whole sea, and, and, and you're sitting here going, it'd be easier just to kill all those Egyptians. Why don't you just wipe them out? I've seen you do it. What, what's this thing? Raising the hand and walking on water and through the thing. What is all this? I mean, maybe you guys have such faith that whenever God says something, it's just clear and you can jump right into it. Uh, it's, you know, God and I have to have some conversations often before, I, before, before I'm going to say, okay, God, you win and uh, we'll do it your way. 
Now, I should get there a lot sooner than I do, but that's what it would be like. You know, that had to be an incredibly amazing night. Can you stop there with your two million people? You're, you're there, and you've got your family, the babies and everybody. And you're the man of that household, and you led your families following Moses out into this place, and now those guys are coming behind to kill. Who do they always kill first? The easiest, the most vulnerable. And the reality is, you need to understand, these had been 600,000 men that had been slaves. How many of them do you think was competent with arms, with fighting, with knowing how to protect themselves and others? Do you think the Egyptians trained, trained them in that? The only thing they really knew how to handle were farm implements. They'd never been trained how to fight. And now we're sitting here facing these, this horde of armies. The waves piled up. Literally, as you read through the, this passage, you'll notice where it says, the, the wind blew, the waves piled up. The wind blew, and the, literally, before they could ever go anywhere, he had, God had to dry off the whole bottom of the sea, or they would have just bogged down. He had to dry all of that out. They followed through the Israelites, walked through, taking the babies, their carts, their hand carts probably. Some of them may have had livestock. And they walked through with a huge wall of water on both sides. And that, that tops anything that Disney can come up with. That'd be an incredible trip to walk through that time. Now, what makes this really interesting is that all the while this is occurring, God has done another miraculous thing. If you will, look at verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel. See, not only did Moses have the word of the Lord, he had the actual presence of God leading him where to go. So he's following, you know, this, this was not an accidental U-turn. Well, the one, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Makes sense to me, doesn't it? I mean, it's going to take you all night to get all these people across for everything to occur. And if I don't protect them, they're going to be destroyed. Now, here's the interesting thing of how it worked. And you first read it, and it's confusing. It says, and there was the cloud and the darkness. Right? So where the cloud was between them, right? And so it says there was the darkness. So at this point in time, the entire Egyptian army is in total darkness. I mean, it'd be like a great eclipse. There wasn't anything they could see. And so they were in total darkness. But then it says, and it lit up the night. Okay, will you explain that to me, please? I, I can't figure that one out. How could there be darkness and it lit up the night? Well, the reality was that God had used the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Who needed light? The Israelites did. How are you going to get through all this mess? How are you going to do all of this without any light if it's total darkness? 
So on the one hand, the Egyptians are in total darkness and the Israelites are in the light. That's a wonderful spiritual picture, isn't it? Between the world and the believer. But as you said that, and, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night long. Now, I told you one of the reasons is, many of this is a very familiar story, and I wanted us to focus on the purpose and the lessons behind these events. Now, what was the purpose for the Egyptians? I mean, God never does anything without a purpose. So if you look at verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall what? What will the Egyptians, what happens? They will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, the powerful one, the mighty one. In verse 17, to show what goes on now, he says, uh, they shall go in after them, the Pharaoh, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the purpose of this particular miracle and event, there is a purpose shown to the world. Because Egypt would represent all the rest of the known civilizations. And God wanted all of the world to know from this circumstance, I am the Lord. I am almighty. I am all-powerful, I'm in control over everything, I'm all authority, and then he also shows, and I care for my people. Notice he demonstrated his judgment, but he also demonstrated his salvation and his redemption. All in that, and that's, that was all to be shown to the world. God's glory clearly revealed. So that makes us stop and think, if you're finding yourself in a place that God led you, part of the purpose of that positioning and that challenge and that trial is that God wants to demonstrate to the world around you, I am God, through you. Sometimes we, we don't see that part of these horrible situations that can come at us. But there is that side when God wants to show the world. I want them to know the Lord. Well, what happens, what about for the, uh, the people of God? What was the real purpose or lesson that's in that for them? Well, down verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Now that's a kind of a gruesome, uh, I don't know exactly why that was there, except that that just absolutely guaranteed into the mind and the hearts of the Israelites the final what God had done to the, Israel, the Egyptians. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. When God was showing this, and oftentimes when we're in a hard, hard situation, when God leads us through that, that's the time 
when we can look at it and say, we don't have the fear of the Lord the same as a believer in Christ as what the Israelites needed, but there's still the fear of the Lord, which is recognizing his authority, his control, who he is. He is the Lord. And it also confirms our belief in him. Because when God does something special, again, if he's led us into the situation and it just is awful, then when he pulls out and does his way of getting us out of it, all we can sit there and say is, thank you, God, for carrying me through it and also releasing me from it. That means that if we're in a situation like this, the first thing we need to do is to tell ourselves, I'm not here by accident. Because oftentimes, if we're in a very difficult circumstance, we automatically, we just don't know why we're there. And so we ask that question. We need to tell ourselves, God is in control. This didn't happen to me by accident. Sometimes that's harder to accept than if it were. But it's the reality. Who else was ever led by the Father into a really horrible situation? Can you give me a hint? Where? He was led. See that, that, that passage in Matthew 4? It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I mean, there was purposes. And if you look at the kingdom purposes of Christ being into the wilderness, and you look at the purposes for the Messiah, you can see it from this end, but not from that end. I often thought, you know, this came right on the heels of Jesus' baptism. When the Father said, so that others could hear, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He said it to Jesus, he said it to those around. He had just had the beginning of his public ministry, the highlight of it. He'd just been baptized. Walks out of it, the dove comes down, the Spirit of God is on him, and then that very same Spirit says, come on, we're going into the wilderness and you're going to fast for 40 nights and 40 days and you're going to be tempted to the best that the enemy has. I stopped and thought on this. I, I can't tell you what your pyhirus might be. But I do know that this whole passage and all of the stories and all of the truth of the Old Testament has a purpose. Sometimes we forget that. In 1 Corinthians 10 Specifically, it says that now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And it describes all of these different circumstances that the Israelites went through, especially in the Exodus. And then in verse 11, it says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. There's a reason why this story is in the Old Testament, and it's for us. So I ask myself the question, what, is my, what are my toughest battles when I'm facing a hard situation that really wasn't my fault? 
Well, the first thing I have to admit is, is, is I become fearful. And the reason why I become fearful is that I don't really trust God. Isn't that true? People wonder what the opposite of fear is. It's not courage, not spiritually. The opposite fear is trust. Trusting in the Lord with all of our heart. That's the only way we can face these situations. And when it's overwhelming and it's bad, coming to a place and a choice of trust is probably the hardest spiritual challenge I find myself in that time. The second one to that is the control issue. Do any of you struggle with trying to control your life? Okay, I just, you guys are all a bunch of fibbers. We want to control it. And when it's out of control, we panic. Fear is right in there with control, isn't it? You got out of control. And what Moses was saying, what we need to do is if, if God has led us there, there is a reason. We need to stop and listen and wait and see what God wants to do in that circumstance. That's one of those be still and know that I am God. Being quiet. Giving up control. Well, actually, we're not giving up control. We're just admitting that we don't have any control. And we're just throwing it out there to them and saying, I'm hurting. Please do something. The one good thing about most pyhirus, and I say most because this isn't just totally for everything, is that normally these tests don't last forever. They're usually short, just overwhelming blasts that come into our lives, but you're going to have more than one. They're going to come at you because as you learn from that, remember all of what he was trying to teach the Israelites was, I'm leading you into the promised land. I'm going to lead you through incredible battles. I want you to learn that you can trust me. I am in control. You can trust me. If we could learn those two lessons, our lives will be incredibly simpler. He is in control. We can trust him. I, um, I just thought of some things of what I thought. I mentioned abusive situations that, are not the, that, that have been brought about someone. What happens when you're heading, you know you're going to a divine destination. You're going on a trip. You're going somewhere because God told you to go there, and there's a horrible accident. And you're suffering consequences from that. We've all seen those situations. I mean, something simple, like you know that God has finally given you the blessing and led you out of your apartment. You now get to buy a house. And you're convinced. You've prayed. You've sought counsel. You're not doing anything stupid. You've got the finances put together. You move into the house, and it becomes, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, The Money Pit. Everything breaks. There is no money left. God, why did you bring us here? Of course, you may not know that for a while. It might be just because you're, you're there for your neighbor, who God wants to show your neighbor who he is. I don't, you know, that's the things. Um, I don't know, I've been in a situation where, where I was led to change jobs. I mean, I'm absolutely 100% convinced to change jobs, move, put the family under some kind of price. 
and you get to the new place, and what happens? Have you had the job dried up when you got there? Oh, we're sorry. We thought this was going to be for forever. It's only for two months, and you're gone. And you're left with this idea of going, God, what are you doing? Why did you bring us here? Why are you putting all my family under this kind of, a, of, of pressure? It's all kinds of things. And you may be in one right now that you're, you're struggling with. There is a reason. He has a purpose. Trust him and look for his deliverance. And share your experience with believers in the world around you. Because that's how they're going to know that it's God at work in your life, not me just learning how to try to get it out. Our fear can change to trust, our doubts to belief. Our pyrus, if you looked at the Israelites, they went from complaining, fear, absolutely overwhelmed, till they got to the other side, and we have one of the most beautiful worship passages ever written. And so it, all this hopelessness got changed to worship. I was going to share, and I think I do still have a little bit of time on this one. I was going to share one pyhirith in our life because what I found in, in, in living and trying to walk with the Lord is, is that he trains you, okay, whether you want to be or not, okay? We're in an endurance spiritual race, and it talks in Scripture about per perseverance that leads to endurance, and it talks about testing our faith, doesn't it? Well, part of what he's testing our faith is to strengthen it. So that the next challenge that may come down your, your path, which God knows is coming, is going to be more challenging than the one you just had. Many of you can already talk about that. One of the major ones that hit us that I can remember, as soon as I started looking at this, I'm going, boom, that one's a... That was in the headlights. Because I... I, I I was the Moses in that situation, okay? I, I'm the one that thought I heard from God. Uh, and so I told my wife that I thought we were supposed to sell her dream home in Florida. We were going to sell most of everything we had, leave the law office, and move to Chicago and go to seminary. Now, can you imagine what that, I mean, not only is she leaving a, a church she loved, a house she loved, being closer to her parents, a lake house we could go to on weekends. I can't think of all the other good things. We had a two-year-old baby, two-year-old child, and a, uh, and a poodle. And that's about all we could take with us. After several, several, several months, my sweet wife, she just, she figured out, I'm not sure if he's really hearing from God, but I'm hearing from God that I'm supposed to let him try this crazy thing and go with him. Is that a fair statement? So here we go, and this is, we haven't moved yet, but God, okay, is showing us, demonstrate this was God's word. I mean, he was telling us this. He sold our house, just like that at a time when houses weren't selling. As a matter of fact, we were at we were out to dinner, and we were gonna, I was deciding if it didn't, sell to, it didn't sell this week, we weren't going to go. And he was showing that house through my mom while we were at dinner. And it sold while we were having dinner. 
And so we'd seen this. And so here we are. Okay, now, sometimes I'm not too bright. Do not take a Miami girl to Chicago in January for her first experience. I mean, we were so lost. We found out later we took a shortcut from one building to the other. We didn't find out till later. We, we walked across the pond. Yeah, we didn't know there was a pond there. But in Chicago in January, it's, it's frozen. <laughs> so we had one day in order to find a place to live. I mean, God had already done some of the things. I had a really good potential for a job. We had friends there. We looked, the school was going to work. They were actually going to let me in. I mean, it was, it, everything was working. And so we had to go find a place. And I'm thinking, well, what's the big deal about finding a place to live? I mean, we needed two, but we're going to, going from a, what, a four-bedroom home to a two-bedroom apartment, big jump, but we only had one child at the time. So I'm saying, we can do this. So we go to the school, pull out the housing books. You know, every, every college, university has housing books. And wherever people wanted, you know, all the rentals that are all in the area, you go through these books. So I pulled out the rental book, and I, we, we're all excited. The sun's shining in the morning, and we're all pumped and ready to go, and our two-year-old's being watched by some friends, and we start going through these books. And so, you know, my wife is writing. She's very detail-oriented, so anytime we did it. What we found out was there are a whole lot of people that either don't want a child or they don't want a dog. And if you've got both, there aren't a whole lot of choices that are out there. But we had some, and we're all, okay, we'll go take a look at these. They were the worst places you ever saw. Two-bedroom concrete block, bare floors, and it was way more money than we were paying for a mortgage. And we're getting more and more discouraged. So we looked at every place that we had. And I'm beginning to, you know, Pam, Pam, is, Pam is not doing well. And when Pam does not do well, neither do I. And I'm sitting there watching her spirits sink lower and lower. And of course, in Chicago, if you've ever lived in that part of the north, afternoons are awful. It gets gray and dreary and overcast. And as it gets dark at 4 o'clock, it was getting worse. So finally, about 3.30, 4 o'clock, I just pulled over in the car. She's in tears, and I am too. And I'm going, I don't know what you're doing, God. This doesn't make any sense. I, it's impossible. And so she and I prayed, and we cried. And the only thing I could think of, okay, you talk about desperation. I'm going, I don't know what else to do, but in my kind of way of thinking, let's pretend like today didn't happen. Have you ever done that? It's so bad, let's pretend like it didn't happen. We're going to go back and start over. We're going to go back and pull out the rentals, the book. We're going to start all over and find if there's, we must have missed one entry that would take a, 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 a dog and a kid. So I go back. Now, please understand I was so emotionally exhausted and tired that we went back. And there are two books at that housing place. One are rentals, which is what we needed. The other is live-in situations. You know those situations, at the, the, in college, especially around Christian colleges, 
A lot of people will list, we need someone to live in our bedroom to help take care of mom or to watch the house. And this is a northern Chicago, ritzy, ritzy kind of area. So they could afford those things. Well, obviously, they, we didn't want one bedroom and, and all that kind of stuff. So we'd never looked in that book. I picked up the wrong book. Accidentally picked up the wrong book. And I opened the book that was for live-ins. Now, this is how tired I was. They, they're totally different forms, right? I'm looking at it, and in the back of my mind, there was a little inkling that said, this doesn't look quite right. That's all I saw was inkling. But being the way that I was, I just went to the one line that says, dogs and kids. And if it were both checked, you could have dogs and kids. I, we were going to look at So I'm flipping through this thing, and of course, there's no place with dogs. I come to one, and I looked at it. And can you believe there was one listing that was put in the wrong book? One. I looked at that listing, and I'm going, this can't be real. It was a three-bedroom, two-bath, wasn't it? Three-bedroom, two-bath house in Skokie, Illinois, with a basement. It had washer and dryer. It had a backyard. It had a garage with a garage door opener, which for a Miami girl, <laughs> that's kind of important. It was a block, which we only had one car. It was a block from the grocery store and the drug store in the city park. And they were asking $250 a month. That didn't even cover the insurance and the taxes of that house. Well, I obviously, I called them right away. Well, the funny thing is, these people were retiring to Florida, and they were not sure that's what they wanted to do, so they wanted somebody to live in their house. And that's why they put it in the live-in. But the interesting thing was, these were not believers. Their accountant had told them, well, if you want somebody to live in your house, get somebody from Trinity Seminary, because they don't have wild parties, and... <laughs> They won't mess up your house. So that's what they had done without any other understanding. I called, and they're already in Florida, and their son was less than helpful. He didn't want to be bothered. But we were flying out the next afternoon. And I said, we have to, can we come see it? And we, we really think we want this. Oh, if I have to. I mean, he was, he was really. We showed up, and that's when we found out it had all those things. Not even top that story off a little bit. I mean, we hit a bunch of pahiris during seminary. But the one we never hit was that housing because a year and a half into it, they came, they were there, and they came to us, and I figured they were either going to raise the rent or kick us out. And they said, we've decided that we're going to let you stay here until you graduate. Unbelievable. But that was the lowest to that point in time of my life when I looked at my wife, who had followed me, given up just about everything materially, and she's devastated and in tears, and I got her there, and it was God's fault. Does that make sense? But walking through those things, again, it strengthens you when you can look back and say, it, wa it wasn't fun. Some of these situations are a lot worse than that. that that's just a simple one-time type of thing. But the lessons that we learn 
on trusting God, following God, letting go of things, and the lessons. Because one of the things came, Pam's co-workers in the nursing world were totally convinced that she was nuts. They would have divorced me. They weren't going to leave their house and their, their, the, all of that they had going on. But Pam was telling them what... When she began sharing that story, and I'm sure she shared it with a lot more detail than I did, it just, it affected them. All of a sudden, they're beginning to say, you mean God actually is, a, is, a, is alive? Actually does stuff? We began to see that, and it strength, obviously strengthened our faith incredibly. That's all that I'm thinking today, is that some of you I know are in situations you didn't pick relationships that are broken, and 95% of it's not your fault. You are in economic situations that may not have been your fault at all, and yet you're having to face that. God's, it's not by accident, it's a pie of high risk, God is at work, and he will lead you, and it's allowing him to do that. What was the greatest demonstration? I mean, where was the lowest Pahirath, do you think, that the world that has ever occurred in human history? Where was the lowest Pahirath? Calvary. What do you think those disciples were thinking? I mean, they saw what was going on. They saw that, that what happened, but it had to happen. Jesus voluntarily went through all of that. What's interesting is, while Golgotha was the Pyahirath of the New Testament, the resurrection was the crossing of the Red Sea into life, into hope, into worship. That's what makes it so neat every, except for Lent, every Sunday. When we come and we break the bread together, representing the body of Christ that was given for us. We dip it into the cup, which represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. You know, we would be permanently in a pyhirath if it were not for what Christ did on the cross and the resurrection that followed. So when we come, no matter where your situation might be today, we can rejoice. The bottom line, in the end, God is in control. He is going to return. Christ will return. Everything will be made right. And that will be forever. We'll think that the Israelites rejoiced at crossing that Red Sea. What's it going to feel like? How are we going to be rejoicing when we walk into the presence of Christ in the new heaven and the new earth? Incredible. That's what we have to celebrate.